Hello and welcome to another episode of ESG Voices. This podcast series addresses the opportunities and challenges within ESG through interviews with ESG specialists from KPMG and beyond. Throughout this series, we will discuss a broad range of environmental, social and governance issues, aiming to support governments, businesses and communities in creating an equitable and prosperous future. We're in the midst of a global energy transition that may fundamentally transform the way energy is generated, distributed, stored and accessed, with renewable energy at the centre. Amidst the urgency of the climate crisis and the shift toward a net-zero future, geopolitical and economic forces are exacerbating the complex move away from fossil fuels. To dig into all this on the sidelines of COP27 in Egypt, I am delighted to be joined by Aperba Mitra, Associate Partner, KPMG in India. Bridget Beals, partner and co-head of Climate Risk and Strategy at KPMG in the UK, and Juanita Lopez, partner KPMG in Colombia. Today, the panel will be discussing financing the transition to a low-carbon and resilient economy. Thank you all for joining me today. To kick off the conversation today, and broadly speaking, where are we now in how successfully companies are financing the transition to a low-carbon and resilient economy? Aperba, can I come to you first? Investment today in key energy transition sectors, whether on the supply or demand side, such as renewable energy, energy storage, um, electric vehicles, industrial electrification, or even hydrogen, are showing impressive growth. We know that investment in renewable energy, specifically wind, solar, and other sources, has touched uh, record highs today. So one can safely say that green technologies and green business models are truly the new investment frontier. And while both debt and equity are used to fund these investments traditionally, the capital structure investments today is moving more towards debt. Thematic bonds such as green bonds and sustainability-linked bonds are increasing in popularity. While the green bonds market has been around for more than a decade now, SLBs are newer. Uh, data from the Climate Bonds Initiative shows that we've crossed the $2 trillion USD mark for cumulative green bond issuances already. Uh, so this market has shown good healthy growth. What is showing steeper growth today is the SLB space where bond characteristics such as coupon rates are linked to corporate-level KPIs or SDG goals, uh, which makes it easier for some companies because you don't have to specifically define the use of proceeds. But it essentially ties into your commitments at the corporate level instead. It's also important to realize that new generation investors are showing interest in financing these sectors for a variety of reasons. One, because they do care about sustainability and do recognize the benefits to society at large. Two, if you look at it from the profitability perspective, investments in these sectors also makes business sense today. Uh, For example, with the way that the prices of renewable power have come to parity, or the way that policy is being aligned by national governments to make these investments attractive. Bridget, would you add anything? Broadly, I would break this up into uh, three kind of key buckets of technology and, and infrastructure that's needed for that low carbon and resilient economy, and then put a sort of developed in an emerging markets lens uh, onto that as well. So if we think about those technology buckets, maybe to, to start with, you know, you've got you've got a low carbon bucket of well-proven, really commercial technologies like solar, like wind. Um, they've been around now for, for, you know, for the best part of 10, 20 years. Uh, and they've got some really good revenue structures and some really good investment certainty behind them. And you know, I think it's fair to say what we're seeing in terms of investment into those assets is that they are hugely investable. Discount rates are, are well, well down. Usually when these assets are, are sort of recycled through through the sort of uh, investment process, 
we see lots and lots of bidders and, and generally they're oversubscribed. So I, th I think that part of the market's doing really well, particularly in developed countries, but increasingly uh, in some of the emerging markets uh, as well. You got that second bucket, which is more things like sort of hydrogen, CCUS, you know, that that sort of part of the technology stack, which is a little bit more nascent, perhaps not totally commercially proven yet, and, and relies on a bit more sort of government intervention to start to break down some of those technology obstacles to, to en enable the market to actually finance those technologies. We are starting to see appetite for those technologies and from quite a broad range of, of sort of capital options um, but but there are still challenges and and those those structures are really quite bespoke that's obviously quite particular to the developed market and I think it'll be a wee while before we see that follow through into some of the emerging markets though being able to follow through in a relatively quick fashion I think is going to be a, a key enabler uh, of this low carbon transition if we move over to that third bucket then you're talking about some of this sort of what I would almost call kind of new thematics, new technologies, things like flood resilience, things like uh, sustainable agriculture and really nascent technologies like direct air capture and, and things like that, which are kind of quite far down that kind of low carbon technology and, and resilient economy kind of thinking structure. And I think we're just starting to see the market really turn its mind to what's the out of the possible. A lot of this is still really... Uh, in the venture capital or, or sort of very high-end private equity space. But, you know, we absolutely need these to move much faster through to maturity um, than anything we've seen before. Mitigation and adaptation in particular uh, is becoming absolutely critical pillar um, of enabling us to have a resilient economy as climate change really comes to the fore. So that third bucket is the least mature from a financing perspective today but you know the most in need of all of our best thinking power and brain power to to really bring that through the maturation curve really really quickly thanks bridget what are the biggest opportunities when it comes to financing the transition to a low carbon and resilient economy for investors today who want to capitalize on the transition renewable energy offers one of the biggest opportunities now, the cost of technologies such as solar energy have been declining over time, you know, which has enhanced its uptake across the world. And across various countries, uh, we were able to achieve parity much sooner than most experts predicted. However, renewable energy is just one piece, right? One could also invest in various downstream products, uh, including energy storage, for example, lithium batteries, which is important from the perspective of not just incorporating greater amounts of renewable energy in the grid or energy systems, uh, but it would also allow renewable energy to become the low-cost transportation fuel of the future. Or one could invest upstream in acquiring materials and minerals used in these technologies. One could also invest in infrastructure, smart grids, um, industrial electrification, digital tool, um, smart devices, uh, green appliances, you know, when it comes to the building sector. So I'd say today investors are, you know, spoiled for choice. Other novel technologies such as, you know, green hydrogen are very important from the perspective of decarbonizing the hard to wage sectors. But they are the longer term bets because they are yet to achieve commercial viability. Um, they're very important from the transition perspective, though. And a lot of green and blue hydrogen projects have been announced worldwide, but all of them are still in their early stages. Although there's a sort of decent effort across several countries to promote its manufacturing uptake. What are the biggest challenges we still face in this effort? Any particular lessons learned so far? What do you think are the main challenges and opportunities for companies in emerging markets? 
So having talked about all the positives in terms of how the market is picking up, we have to recognize that there's still a huge financing gap. We know that the opportunity is big, capital is available, but we need to be able to find ways to effectively channelize it to countries and sectors where the need is critical. If you look at lower middle and low income countries, they've received just 5% and 0.3% of the global clean energy investment in the last decade. So this definitely needs to increase. And COVID has made it that much worse because it's led to project delays, there was finance needed for competing developmental priorities, and this was felt more keenly within the developing world. And if you look at the scale of transformation that is needed to keep in line with our 1.5 degree pathways, capital needs to be mobilized at much larger scale. And a large part of it would probably need to be privately financed, while public finance uh, focuses on infrastructure or other critical and shared resources. Uh, we need more blended capital. We need greater access to long-term financing. Uh, we need more policy certainty, which can provide the right signals to institutional investors. We need to build that enabling environment, policy and regulation-wise, that can drive uptake of some of these key transition technologies. On the debt capital market side, I mentioned green bonds and SLBs. But for many countries, particularly those in Asia, we require transition finance as well. You know, finance which helps emission-intensive companies undertake decarbonized initiatives. Uh, we need finance for hard to abate sectors because that's where it's the most technically challenging, where a lot of investment in the future needs to flow. We need investments in other key sectors such as construction materials, chemicals and shippings as well. We need sustainable finance taxonomies such as those prepared in the EU. We need that across countries to identify economic activities that can get eligible for green and transition finance. We need investment in carbon capture storage technologies, which has probably been one of the slower ones because of the lack of viable business models, but it's critical from the 1.5 degree pathway perspective. And overall, of course, we need the transition to be just. Any transformation pathway will have unintended distributional consequences. It will disproportionately negatively impact some communities, sectors and regions versus others. So activities and investments must be geared towards enabling a just transition, which is fair and inclusive, creates decent work opportunities and leaves no one behind. I think the, the biggest reflection from me is we need to we need to stop believing that the market for climate change has to be perfect at the get go to make it financeable and investable. And I say this with a particular reflection on the carbon market. The, the global carbon market's got something of a bad rep and um, yeah, absolutely there's been some fly-by-nighters in that market over time. But the market's been rallying around it through the Task Force on Scaling Voluntary Carbon Markets, through the Voluntary Carbon Markets Integrity Initiative to start to bring much-needed governance frameworks um, around that market and to ensure the integrity and, and the sort of appropriate governance of, of what's happening in that in that marketplace. And the carbon market is an absolutely critical vehicle for unlocking those flows of private finance from developed into developing and emerging markets. But but there's this underlying belief that, you know, if the voluntary carbon market isn't absolutely perfect, if there's any negative externality in that market, if it's not integrity within an integritous within an inch of its life, that it somehow shouldn't be a part of the solution. But the bottom line is it absolutely must be a part of a net zero solution. We need those flows of finance. We need a thriving global carbon market. And if we look at any financial market in the world, it's there's, there's no market which is functioning without any negative externality. So um, hands up, I'm not, I'm not saying 
the global carbon market's perfect, but if there is net positivity in what is happening across that market, then that has to be a good thing as we seek to scale uh, and drive towards these um, hugely important outcomes. And I think we just need to balance integrity and governance with that kind of need for those flows of, of finance to drive those sort of appropriate mitigation, adaptation and decarbonisation outcomes. I think the challenges, the challenges are, are several, but I would say for emerging countries, one of the most important challenge is to know how much it costs to adapt the economies to a low carbon and resilient economy. And that means transformation of different sectors, specifically the infrastructure sector, the energy sector, the industry sector, the agricultural sector, water and, and sanitation and all that need a lot of understanding in the countries of what specifically are the changes that need to be made in terms of how projects are developed, in terms of what it specifically means for a project to be adapted or resilient, how a project is net zero or green proof. And so countries in developing, well, developing countries need still to still have a lot of efforts there. And then I think the second is how to channel the right investments to those projects. The truth is we'll still see a huge gap of financing flows from developed countries through developing countries, but it's not only through that flows that adaptation will be attained. There is a need to in, in developing countries to link or align those that transformation or, or, or priorities in transformation of the sectors to the finance of the countries, to the long-term financial strategies. I, I would add that what is expected for, from COP27, it's to acknowledge that there is this gap on finance and financial flows and to access to those financial flows in order to support vulnerable countries and to promote this transformation in, in development policies in, in the countries that are more exposed to, to climate change. Could you explain what Climate IQ is and what can you tell us about how it may help companies to better understand how to mitigate financial risk and exposure? Bridget. Climate IQ is um, something KPMG's been producing as kind of proprietary software over the last couple of years, and it is super exciting. Uh, it's the what we think is one of the first tools of its kind that really connects the best of climate science uh, with those macroeconomic impacts of of climate change, um, and then crucially links that through to financial value for companies and governments to understand how this kind of change, whether it's transition risk, the, the shift to a low carbon economy, or physical risk, the, the onset of sort of floods, fires, droughts, as, as we move into this climate changed world. Um, so, so bringing those impacts together around how it will impact uh, onto a company. So it models different scenarios of the world. So it says, what if the world was four degrees warmer by 2100? What if it was just one and a half degrees warmer by 2100? Uh, what, what does a picture of the world look like in that scenario? Which sectors produce the output? Uh, 
what energy do they use to produce that output and what carbon price is required to incentivize those companies to do those things and achieve that level of emissions reductions. And based on that sector and country disaggregation, it can link through to a company's financials, sensitize those financials and help us sort of form a differentiated view of the discounted cash flows of an asset or an entity as it goes forward um, to make sure that we are able to bake in both the sort of potential for value destruction, but also the potential for value creation uh, into those financial valuations as we go forward. So super exciting uh, and really is kind of first of its kind in terms of fully making that link between climate change and financial value. What should companies think about when they consider opportunities for investment and value creation in their path to net zero? Oh, so many things. Um, I think um, I bring this back to to a couple of key things. Yeah, we always view net zero at KPMG as a revolution and, and not an evolution. You know, we think that this is going to be absolutely transformative. And the example I always come back to is in March 20 or in 2020, I should say, you know, we, we obviously had the COVID pandemic and we were all, you know, locked in our houses. There's no cars on the roads. There was airplanes all out of the sky, lots of factories shuttered. And in 2020, globally emissions reduced by just 7%. Of course, since COVID, it's all rebounded. We're back on the up, which is quite devastating, but it is what it is. To achieve net zero, we have to deliver 7% carbon reduction every single year until 2050. So that just gives you a sense of how profound this economic shift must be to deliver um, on that outcome. So as companies are thinking about how to respond, you know, they, they need to consider this as just a really big change agenda and, and sort of make sure that their decisions are proportionate to that for every part of the economy that may sort of lose value as we make that transition, there will be equal and opposite opportunities for alternative ways of doing things, alternative technologies, alternative consumer preferences, uh, which will you know, have an offsetting effect in the economy, if not in that company. So I encourage business leaders to really think about how to incorporate those adjacencies, those synergies and, and those value creation opportunities back into their own business model, back into their own core skill set. Just like what we see with the oil and gas majors as they pivot into things like offshore wind and CCUS and hydrogen, really adjacent skill sets and crucially required in this sort of low carbon transition. So, so that would be my sort of key urge um, to business leaders listening to this podcast. I think they need to understand, uh, well, to have a very specific goals that are set and specific plans to attain those goals. Uh, I think opportunities for investment come when there is a good fit between the commitments and the pledges and what companies are doing to go to get to those pledges and commitments through their roadmaps. And for that, there are different options. I think one of the main options companies may think now for finance is 
sustainable linked bonds. That is a, a I, I would say, relevant tool for link the efforts that a company does in sustainability to the access of finance. But there are others. So I think uh, the 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 when we come to considering opportunities for investment, the the key part is how these investments that are needed respond to a clear strategy, a long-term vision. And I think the market is ready and there are a lot of opportunities and, and, and possibilities for finance those initiatives. But what the market is expecting is that those initiatives are linked to a long-term vision and to a strategic view of the transformation that is needed in the business, in the company, in the value chain to attain the goals we have in terms of development and in terms of transi transitioning to a low carbon economy. And what advice would you have for companies that are considering investing to support their net zero plans? So the one thing I would like to say is this is the right time to invest. Investments in renewables will need to rise drastically for us to meet temperature targets. And the market is ripe at the moment. Because there are a lot of drivers and catalysts that are playing into this growth story, which is making green energy increasingly popular. So the time to invest really is now. right? Given the kind of investments that are anticipated in this space, investors who choose to finance the green energy transition today could see their investments give big returns as the demand for green energy increases. As an individual investor, there are various ways in, one, in which one could invest. For example, through mutual funds or index funds, that invest in diversified portfolio of renewable energy securities, or one could invest in individual stocks. There are companies that are just green, and there are those who are diversified in terms of businesses within the energy sector. Um, so what has choices to make? I think investment is, is crucial in order to support uh, a, a net zero plan. I don't think there is any company in the world which will not need to do some form of investment, whether that's you know capex to, to retrofit existing infrastructure or or whether that's investment and research and development to develop new capabilities, or indeed to, to sort of cater to those synergies and, and interdependencies that I've just sort of spoken about. I think the really key thing for me is keeping in mind as they're making that investment case that the financial market in which they're investing today will be irrevocably changed as they move forward. So sensitizing those investments through the ways we've just described around the use of climate IQ and, and that big change coming through the market to make sure that that investment is the right investment for the long term. Um, there is no point in decarbonizing a piece of kit that makes widgets that aren't consumed in, in a 2050 world. So invest in the right things um, at the right time for, for the right reasons uh, and, and there's so much value to be had here. And finally, what are you hoping to hear from COP27 on how companies are realigning or planning to realign their business strategies with net zero? How can this set the stage for COP28 next year? Juanita, can I come to you first? Yes, I think what we are we, what we are expecting to to see from companies is to provide credibility on on how those objectives and pledges will be attained and so i think that it's it is very important that companies start to be transparent on how they are defining their goals 
on how these goals are, for example, based in science or are science-based targets. And, and that companies are actually providing information on, on how these targets will, will, will be achieved. So this COP is meant to be a developing country COP. And Egypt has already clearly communicated that climate finance needs to be on top of the agenda. Because a lot of countries in Africa, they face significant funding gaps, whether it's for mitigation or adaptation. The recent NDC synthesis report that was released by UNFCCC clearly says that we will get to 2.1 degrees and 2.9 degrees warming by the end of the century, even if all NDCs are met. So clearly more needs to happen. The promise of providing 100 billion, which was laid out in the Paris Agreement, is also not yet met, even as we explore new goals and targets. And then there's the larger question of ensuring that the distribution of these funds is fair and equitable. If we talk about the private sector, like I mentioned, one of the previous successes of the COP was how well the private sector stepped up to the plate. Many individual pledges, but also several net zero commitments by cohorts of companies were made. But this COP may not have some of those big targets thrown around. The focus really should be on how these long-term targets can tie in with short-term targets in progress. A larger focus on implementation of net zero pledges is what is necessary. You know, what are the challenges? What are the policy roadblocks? And how do we speed up the transition, given that we're clearly lagging when it comes to the 1.5 degree goal? In terms of scaling up, I'm hoping companies also explore various opportunities to digitize and diversify. Investors are already backing out of fossil fuel investments. A number of oil and gas companies have already diversified the businesses. So there are a lot of positives. Yeah, I'm so excited about COP27. Um... I'm going to be on the ground in, in Sharm El Sheikh with uh, KPMG's delegation. It's going to be uh, it's going to be a really fantastic um, set of events. Uh, so for me, um, I think probably two key things I'm really excited about. One is the uh, publication of both the UK Transition Plan Task Force and the GFANS Global Financial Alliance on Net Zero's guidance to uh, UK corporates and uh, financial institutions, respectively, uh, on what they expect from transition plans going forward. It's obviously been widely trailed through the consultation processes, but this is really the sort of firing of the starting gun on this big corporate transformation agenda. Um, this isn't about disclosure. This is about operational and reporting transformation. And that's going to be so, so exciting because that really means companies turning intent into implementation on net zero, which is fantastic. Second key thing for me, we've already touched on this earlier around kind of emerging markets and the, and the, and the carbon market. The rules on Article 6 for the voluntary carbon market were inked last year uh, at COP26, but there's still a lot of uncertainty around exactly how we can implement and link up some of the global carbon markets. And, and as I say, that's crucial for starting to get some of the flows of finance from the developed to the developing world. So with this real focus on emerging markets from an African COP, I'm really excited to see uh, how we can really get those those you know capital flows mobilizing in the in the fastest way possible to, to deliver on this huge challenge we've all got. Then of course looking forward to COP28 in, in Dubai. This is such an immense opportunity that we have. Um, got this corporate transformation and and one of the pillars of the UK's transition plan task force is asking companies to uh, report on how they are enabling this kind of broader transition outside of their own operational boundaries. And the link between those two things I've just mentioned, that, you know, 
the the flows of finance into developing countries through supply chains and suppliers with that element it sets us up so nicely for cop 28 to show the progress on implementation so um, from a from a climate junkie here in london i'm uh, i'm so excited to see this just turn intent into implementation and for us to really start to deliver at scale on this net zero agenda Thanks to all of you for speaking with me today. You've given our listeners a lot to think about in terms of financing the energy transition. Join us again next time for more insights from ESG leaders and innovators. You can also find our latest insights covering a range of ESG topics by visiting home.kpmg forward slash ESG. Thanks for listening. <laughs>